Okay, well, I mean, uh, I'm going to be crying for a bit of time now. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special edition of Peter's Field Hospital, the official podcast for the website wherepeteris.com. I'm your host, Mike Lewis. I'm the managing editor of Where Peter Is, and today I am joined with Dan Amiri. Our guest today is Christopher Lamb, the author of the new book, The Outsider, Pope Francis and His Battle to Reform the Church, published by Orbis Books. Christopher is the Rome correspondent for The Tablet and a regular contributor to other outlets, including the BBC. He has covered Pope Francis and the Vatican for the last five years. Christopher is married and the father of three children. Christopher, welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much, Mike and Dan, for having me. Yeah, it's good to have you on, Christopher. Um, I just finished the book recently, and I have to say, I really appreciate it. It's a really great look at Pope Francis papacy, you know, kind of the momentous events that affected him and, and what he's been involved in over his papacy. And well, I have to say, first of all, it's really well researched and I really appreciate all the work. My first question really is sort of what prompted you to, to write the book? What, what really drove you and, and what gave you passion to do all the work to get this across the finish line? Well, look, I, I moved to Rome with my uh, family uh, to cover the Francis papacy. And uh, I was there in St. Peter's Square when uh, the Pope appeared on the balcony for the first time. And I really wanted to, to document what I felt was the story of the Francis uh, pontificate uh, and to bring together all the articles and other content that I've, I've produced over the years covering it. Uh, and uh, it's a book kind of uh, from the heart uh, to tell uh, the story um, of uh, what I think uh, Pope Francis is is doing in, ter in terms of leading the church. Um, it's not uh, the kind of magnum opus uh, definitive account. It's my story. It's my account. Um, and I hope that it will help uh, ordinary Catholics uh, who want to perhaps learn a little more about the kind of battle that the Pope has, has, has uh, had to go through and is going through uh, to reform the church and also hopefully non-Catholics, those outside the church. Uh, Chris, one of the things that uh, really appealed to me about this book was the fact that it presents a comprehensive overview of all the resistance that Pope Francis has faced, whether in the media or from bishops or from well-financed uh, political figures. What was you? What was it that inspired you to speak about those topics specifically? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, for me, I, I took that approach really from a journalistic uh, position um, to say, look, what is the real story of this of this pontificate? Now, a lot of people have tried to present the Francis papacy as you know. On the one hand, you've got all the people who, who love Pope Francis. On the other hand, you've got people who don't like him as if the church is split 50-50. My view is that that was not correct. I mean, the majority of, of Catholics and people outside of the church 
are inspired by Pope Francis and they think he is the, the, the best asset the church has or one of the best assets the church has in, in rebuilding uh, the credibility of, of the church in, in many parts of the world. So my view was that why is it that a, a prophetic uh, reformer pope, um, a man you know, clearly uh, with of integrity, committed to the gospel, why is he facing so much um, uh, opposition? I mean, he is a—he's also a, a disruptor pope. He's someone who's tried who, who loves to say, you know, we shouldn't do things just because they've always been done that way. Uh, so I wanted to look at the kind of opposition he faced because I felt that was the story. You know, that here is a pope universally loved, respected uh, by ordinary Catholics, yet amongst a number of people in powerful positions, they've tried to to thwart the pontificate. I felt that was an important story that was worth raising up and trying to, to show, rather than this idea that somehow, you know, 50% are in favor and 50% again, which I just don't think is true. Christopher, I, I had a question about that because you know, reading the book, you, you do talk about that. that sort of stood out to me. You talk about Pope Francis being our greatest asset and the perception that I have being in America, maybe just consuming the media that I am exposed to is that uh, that's not what people believe generally, <laughs> or that's just the, the sense that I get from a lot of people that have influence. But in your perspective you, and the people you talk to, you think that is more of a widespread view that Pope Francis is an asset? Well, I, look, I think if you look at the context with which Francis was was elected, it was a very difficult moment um, for uh, the Vatican in particular, and you've, you've had the, the clerical sex abuse scandals, battering the reputation of the church, also problems with Vatican finances, a general sense that the, that the leadership of the church at the centre was, was kind of rudderless. Now, I'm not criticizing Benedict XVI here, um, but he himself felt unable to continue to lead the church. That's why he he resigned. And there's a general sense of, of, of crisis. Um, and the reason why I say that the Pope is the greatest asset, I say that in terms of leadership. Um, you know, as Catholics, we look to the Pope for, for that. And I think that in the context with which he was elected, which was a very difficult time, um, he, came, he here was a, um, a pope who called himself after St. Francis of Assisi, who immediately showed that he was going to be uh, serving, wanted to serve the marginalized, the poorest, who wanted an authentic kind of leadership. So that is a, a, a huge asset for the church. Um, and it's just fascinating that there are so many people in, in high levels who, who don't necessarily feel like that. I'm, I'm not saying that Pope Francis is perfect. He's made a number of mistakes. There have been issues and problems. But I think fundamentally, if you if you look to a, a Christian leader, you want someone of personal integrity and who wants to imbue the, the, the office of the papacy with the, with the values of the gospel. I think that is something that is what the church needs. One of the things that, and I think this is what Dan was referring to, is that especially in the United States, and it's it's possibly the case in, in the UK as well among Catholics, is that for many Catholics, the presentation or the depiction of Pope Francis that they receive is almost entirely negative or is critical or is concerned. There's a 
at the very least, a little bit of nervousness. On the other hand, some stories seem especially tailored to portray him in a negative light. Now, as a Vatican correspondent, you sat there in the Vatican press office with a lot of the journalists who are propagating this view. What do you think is behind that? What do you think motivates that? Yeah, well, look, I, I, I completely uh, see your point, except that a lot of the framing of the Francis pontificate has is particularly in the English speaking Catholic world has tried to skew it in an in a a negative direction. They say, oh, this Pope, you know, he's not very papal because he's not living in the apostolic palace. He speaks off the cuff. He's changing doctrine. Uh, he's not really interested in reforming things. Uh, he's, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I think my, my impression is that uh, the, some of the media coverage has been uh, skewed. And I think the, the, it's part of the world that we're living in, you know, with, with um, social media and, and the rise of, of fake news and et cetera. And there is a tendency to move away from the kind of clear objective reporting and into uh, that sort of ideological narrative. And I think that is what has, has gone on here. There has been a kind of, I say, a Fox Newsification of the Catholic media world, a Breitbartization of it, where you kind of push a line all the time uh, and uh, you, you, you don't put the, the full picture out there. I had a question about your, your experience working alongside other journalists, Christopher. I mean, I think in the epilogue, you talk about how there were some times where maybe things got a little heated or just by being there from the tablet. Um, I mean, what in general terms, you know, your experience working alongside other journalists, do you feel like you had a good working relationship generally? Yes, I, I think there's a very good collegial relationship um, with journalists covering the Vatican in general. Um, and, and you know, on the whole, people get on and, and that's that's all that's all to the good. I mean, the point I make in the book is is what what happened, particularly around the Amazon Synod, when there was a misrepresentation of um, some of the indigenous symbols that we used during the Amazon Synod and around the Amazon Synod. And I felt that that was not, that was not really journalism. That was more advocacy rather than reporting on what was going on. And there was some misrepresentation. Um, I uh, did decide to make um, a, an apology to some of the indigenous uh, people in the Amazon for what I saw was some kind of xenophobic um, commentary from within the, some parts of the Catholic media. Uh, and then I was, um, as I put in my book, I was uh, <laughs> confronted by uh, someone from another media outlet. So uh, ab about that to complain about what I'd said. The point that I'm making in general is that um, during the Amazon Synod, the tensions were, were very high. There was a real battle going on. And of course, we saw with the, the Pachamama statues or the Our Lady of the Amazon statues, uh, which were then thrown into the river. I mean, this was kind of extraordinary uh, drama. And I think you got a sense of the church as being a spiritual battleground during that time. Um, and I, th I think Look, of course, everyone in, in the media have their, their biases and their positions, and no one's totally uh, objective. But I think that when, as an organization, media organization in the Catholic world, you decide to set yourself in kind of 
opposition to the Pope. I think you need to to level with your audience about that editorially and tell people that's your position and explain why that position is, not to kind of go around um, just constantly uh, reporting in a certain way that is 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 not necessarily transparent to people about what your intentions are. I mean, just to give you a quick thing on the tablet, I mean, the tablet was in the past uh, under other pontificates, John Paul II and Benedict XVI, accused of being too progressive, too liberal, too critical. And of course, there were times when the tablet was 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 critical of uh, of of um, those pontificates and the decisions that were made. But I think it was always. They sought to, to couch it within the tradition and within church teaching. What we've seen under um, Francis is a kind of, I'd say, guerrilla warfare, you know, with, particularly with the Archbishop of Vigano letter uh, or statement which called on the Pope to resign that was published with a litany of accusations uh, in full on certain media outlets. And you just wonder, you know, is there reporting going on here or is it advocacy? That's- and that kind of leads into my other question. Catholics in the media, I feel like they often have this natural tension, you know, do do you express loyalty to the Pope or do you do your job in trying to uncover the facts? And obviously you would hope that they would be aligned, but oftentimes you get into that sort of advocacy position where you feel like just by presenting the facts, you're you're taking a side. And so in general terms, like how would you describe the, the role of the Catholic media and how do you you see yourself what how do you try to be a catholic journalist well that's a a great question and i think it kind of cuts to the core uh, of what i try to do and like i've said um that you know i'm a journalist first and a catholic second that doesn't mean that my faith isn't central to who i am and my life but um we need to do the journalism right we need to do the journalism and the reporting well in order for it to be effective in terms of the church and in terms of what it does in in, in service to the church or for, for the church and i th- i think that there is a, a a role of media ministry in a sense it's about trying to explain what is going on trying to give good information to check facts to be reliable uh, but also to to tell the story in a compelling way, to engage with people, not just to be uh, preaching to the converted, but actually trying to get the message out to a, as wide an audience as possible. So that's how I see uh, my role, to do the journalism well, but within the context, obviously, of, of the church and trying to um, make the truths of the, of the faith better understood. And I think that's 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 part of of what we're doing and also i'm operating as a catholic journalist in in an increasingly secularized world particularly in in europe where religious illiteracy is on the rise and i think it's 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 more important than ever that we have good informative accurate reporting that engages audiences some of which some of whom really don't have much understanding of of what the christian faith is Christopher, one of the things that um, has jumped out to me and and one of the reasons why I started Where Peter Is, and I have a feeling that part of it motivated writing your book, uh, people in the past who support Pope Francis had told me, said said things to us like, you should ignore them. That's the fringe. Not many people, no one's listening to them. Why are you drawing attention to them? And while in a lot of ways they do have a point, 
I've noticed that they are actually making an impact on the real world. Uh, not only are a number of Catholics being persuaded by their usual uh, media outlets like EWTN or uh, Ignatius Press Books or First Things, but it's actually having real impact adversely on this papacy. Uh, in your book, you give a litany of 100 either coordinated or highly publicized public challenges or attacks on Pope Francis. And a lot of times these specific attacks actually impacted the way that the church governed or uh proved to be a real disruption to the papacy. I'm thinking of when the uh, Vigano testimony was released in the middle of a highly pressurized visit to Ireland, for example, by the Pope, and he had to address it on the plane. What do you think the goal of all of these attacks on Francis have been? And what do you think has prompted them? It seems to be that they are actively uh, trying to disrupt the papacy. Am I am I inaccurate in saying that? Yeah, I I think they are trying to disrupt it, and they're trying to to thwart some of the the reforms and the direction of of the, of the pontificate of Francis. Um, and I I think you you've got to see sort of two sides of the opposition. There's the theological um, opposition that exists amongst people who feel that Francis is somehow breaking with doctrine and therefore is very dangerous, etc. And then you have what I call the politicized opposition, which is the uh, the opposition from from uh, places like, you know, uh, there's a political opposition which is which is which we've seen with um, you know from Trump to Salvini and to Catholics who have allied themselves with those political forces. Um, and I, I think they see Francis as a as a threat uh, to their um, their worldview. Um, they don't like a pope who focuses focuses relentlessly on the, on the poor and on the on refugees. Who wants to talk about climate change? Who wants to talk about the unfair economic system? They don't like a pope who does that. Um, and they also are concerned about a, a papacy that hasn't um, run to their agenda. I mean, Francis said very early on that. It wasn't going to be, a, he didn't want the church to just be about certain moral teachings. He wanted a different a different agenda. And I think if you've based your kind of professional Catholic life on certain priorities and certain defending certain doctrines, to have a Pope who actually says, no, we're not going to do that anymore, then that is a, that is a threat. And the other thing I point out in the book is, particularly from the um, wealthy donors uh, to Catholic causes, of course, some of the wealthy donors in the U.S. have cut off funding to the Vatican. Um, a lot of that is down to lack of access um, and to not being able to get in to see the Pope. You know, under the previous pontificates, if you were a wealthy donor, you could get in to see um, the Pope in an early morning mass, and that's no longer it's no longer uh, accessible. And so, I think. That is where a lot of the opposition is, is has come from. I think it is politicized as well as being theological. Christopher, that kind of leads into a question I had here. I mean, 
you know, following Pope Francis a, a little bit um, early on in his papacy, I guess I, I was finding that he had a lot of these figures that found themselves close to Francis. Uh, like you mentioned in his book, like he likes to keep his friends close and his enemies closer. So you have maybe maybe Cardinal Sarah and and Mueller, people who might be ideologically opposed to Francis, but have still remained within this fold, if you will. Um, but then Miller gets let go, you know, after his five years, he resigns and, and he goes off and does his thing. But then uh, he almost instantly turns into this anti-Francis advocate and he gets caught up in all the, the controversies. I mean, I, to me, it seems I, I kind of struggle. Like, is, is this something that you know, people are being manipulated into being opposed to him? Or um, is this something like you kind of referring to before? Is it just an ideological difference and they just take issue with him? I mean, I, 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 how entrenched are these powers that are, are so opposed to Francis? I think in, in Rome and the Vatican, there are um, powers who are pretty entrenched against him. And that's where there's a kind of what we call the silent opposition um, you know, the, the people who won't necessarily show their face to oppose, but they will be opposing behind the scenes. So, I mean, I suppose you could see that the Amazon Synod, you know, the, the, the opposition to any change on allowing married men to be ordained priests in the Amazon, that, that was really from the Roman Curia. Of course, that Synod was all about the Amazon. It was the Amazon bishops who came and they all voted en masse to say, look, we need uh, priests uh, or married men as priests to help serve remote communities, but the opposition was from the Curia. Um, similarly, on the on the female deacons, etc. So there is a body of uh, people within the Vatican, I think, in the Curia, who are opposed. Not not a huge amount, but a, a significant body there. Uh, you mentioned Cardinal Muller, and I think that's a, an interesting case because I mean, when he was prefect of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, he was um, you know, openly loyal to Francis and, and sought to defend the teaching. But then as soon as he lost his position, he went down the opposition route. And so you can't help but draw the conclusion that maybe that's because he lost his position abruptly. Um, Cardinal Miller also tried to present himself as the kind of theological guardian to the Francis uh, pontificate because he, because Muller said that Francis was not a theologian and therefore uh, needed a theologian such as Cardinal Muller to help him. Uh, and that was seen as a kind of, you know, we could say a slightly unusual way of looking at the, the, the Cardinal's role, given that the it was only up until... 50 or so years ago, or 60 years ago, that that's the Pope himself was not in charge of that department. So the idea that the Pope needed a theologian to help him was kind of, gave you an insight into how they saw, how people in Rome saw Francis. They see him as kind of, oh, he doesn't he doesn't have enough theological understanding to do the job. And they're, they're used, it's a kind of patronizing view, really, because, you know, they say, oh, well, he's from Latin America. He doesn't really understand theology like we do. So you can see that going on. Um, Within within the Vatican and in and in Rome, and I think it's kind of multi-layered. Like I've said in Rome, doctrine can equal power. Um, defending doctrine can be about defending your position um, as much as it being about a theological or genuine theological debate. Yes, this is um, 
What you said about Cardinal Mueller, especially during his time as prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, one of the things that struck me, and based on some of the stories that I've read and and reports about his time in that role, even though he remained the functional head of that office, it seemed that there was a bit of a disconnect between him and the papacy. Uh, for example, his defenses of Amoris Laetitia didn't precisely line up with the Buenos Aires guidelines or what the document itself said. Obviously, while he was still in the role, he was very vocally supportive, but there weren't a ton of uh, documents coming out from the CDF. I mean, as soon as Cardinal Ladaria took over the role, I think they've put out six or seven documents in in a very short period of time on some very significant topics. I wonder, not speaking specifically about Cardinal Mueller, but if there is a an intellectual disconnect between his theological critics and his papacy and those who support him. Uh, we get peppered with the same questions and the same talking points over and over and over again uh, at where Peter is and on Twitter. And it seems to me that there's something that just isn't clicking with people. Is this something that you've observed as well? But do you think it's an honest misunderstanding or do you think that there's something a little bit more intentional behind it? Uh, yeah, I think you're getting to kind of the heart of the matter here. I mean, you often hear sometimes people arguing from a theological uh, position saying, oh, I, d- I don't agree with what the Pope did, etc., etc. But then when you dig down, it, it's, some, it, 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 it's more than that. It's sometimes a kind of just a general sense that they have a problem with this Pope, which they can't necessarily put their finger on and it's dressed up in in the theological dispute. So I think there is something there. I don't think we've kind of necessarily got to the bottom of what of what that is, but it's almost like somehow this Pope doesn't speak to me or for me, and therefore I must present theological problems with what he's doing. And I, I do think a lot of that goes back to these early morning masses that, that the Pope had has in Santa Marta, which are now being live streamed all over the world um, because of the COVID-19 crisis. But in those masses, uh, the Pope each morning gives his kind of freewheeling homily on the gospel of the day. And he can be very tough on the church in that, in in those homilies. He interprets the gospel, applies the gospel stories to the church. And some people don't like that. I mean, he talks talks about rigid Catholics. He's talked about the the modern day doctors of the law. And there are a lot of people who find that very challenging and unsettling. I would argue that the Pope challenges all Catholics, whether they're um, on the more conservative spectrum or the more liberal spectrum. And I actually put in the book, there's actually quite a lot of opposition to him from the left um, of the church as well as the right. So I think those early morning Santa Marta homilies uh, where he speaks off the cuff, um, they really challenge people. And I think some people find it hard to be challenged in their faith. Um, But that is what the Pope um, is doing. Uh, And I think um, that's why I've described him as um, a disruptor Pope. Um, And I think that might be where some of these these uh, issues that you're talking about um, come into play. 
I should just say there's a funny story as I write in the book about um, uh, when the Pope had a, a meeting of officials from the Roman Curia and uh, he said to them at the end, as he always says, it was early on in his pontificate, he said, please, uh, please pray for me. And um, they replied, oh, one of them replied, oh, we pray for you, Holy Father, especially when you speak off the cuff. <laughs> uh, Christopher, there's a recently... We had this book supposedly co-authored by Cardinal Sarah and the Pope Emeritus Benedict. And that was a that was a topic that I didn't see in your book. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts. It seemed to fit nicely in with some of the figures you mentioned, Nicholas Diat and obviously Cardinal Sarah and the sort of Catholic media interest here in, in America, especially. And I was wondering if you could kind of comment on that or maybe maybe in a future version of this book, you had some more topics and this will be one of them. Yeah, unfortunately, the uh, book had to be sent off before the Cardinal Sarah book uh, came out. So I wasn't able to address that uh, in the book. Um, but I do uh, talk about the role of Cardinal Sarah in um, in the book and and what role he's played and obviously he's someone who has um seems to have challenged francis on the liturgy side of things and francis has corrected cardinal Serrao on a number of um, uh, occasions i think that as i put in the book there are people who are trying to create these kind of parallel authorities parallel papacies so um they sort of presenting alternative visions of of leadership you know going back to the good old days. And I think that's a little bit of what's happened with Cardinal Serra, who I should point out is has got an incredible backstory, which I write about in the book, who's, who, who led the church in Guinea under dictatorships and then came to Rome and now has got this role within the, the, the church, particularly amongst people who are not so keen on Francis, as, as this kind of alternative leader. Um, and he has got support in in the US. I write about how the Knights of Columbus bought up um, copies of his book to distribute. So he has got these kind of supporters. And, and Nicholas Diat, who helps with all the writing of the books, is is the kind of man who is working behind the scenes. The Eminence Grise, as they might <laughs> in traditional the traditional term for that. So yeah, I think Cardinal Serrar is is he's not someone who's openly trying to um, attack Francis, etc. He's, he's doing something a little bit different. Um, and uh, I've tried to explore that in the book. And of course, the, the, the Cardinal's uh, book with, with Benedict XVI on clerical celibacy and all the drama around that showed it, it was clearly an attempt to try and tie the Pope's hands on the Amazon Synod. And that, I think, is why the opposition does matter because whilst the ordinary Catholics will say, well, of course, you know, the Pope can, he can change whatever he wants. He can get on, he can do whatever he wants. Well, actually it's, it's much more complicated than that. Francis has to work within a, within a system where he has gotten a lot of opposition and that does constrict in, in, in some ways and make, and make life quite difficult. So and I suppose it's interesting that the high up you get in the clerical or church establishment, the more you find the opposition to Francis, which I think is quite interesting. Chris, speaking of uh, leaders that are high up in the hierarchy and who are 
establishing alternative magisteria to what Pope Francis has been teaching. Your book touches a little bit on Cardinal Raymond Burke, who seems to have his hand in almost every movement that's associated with resistance to Pope Francis, whether it's EWTN or the Napa Institute or pretty much any organization that seems to have some kind of theological opposition to Francis. What your book doesn't go in depth into into Cardinal Burke, which I commend you for staying your hand. But what do you think his role is in this? For one thing, I think that because of his willingness to sign on to these various initiatives, a lot of which are open letters that are presented to the media or to grant interviews where he says explicitly that a certain magisterial act it has no authority. By being a cardinal, that lends credence to those positions. Do you have any thoughts on his role? I, I think Cardinal Burke, within the opposition to Francis, clearly he has played uh, a leading public role. He's the most obvious conservative traditionalist opponent uh, who goes public to to raise his concerns. And I would say, in, in, to give credit to Cardinal Burke, he does actually make his case in public, and he actually tries to to say what he he says what he thinks. He doesn't hide behind anything or anyone, which I think is to his credit. But I would say that he has been at the forefront of the, what I would call the the um, theological doctrinal attacks on France. It's this claim that somehow the Pope is not really uh, teaching Catholic uh, doctrine in the correct way or somehow breaking with Catholic doctrine. Uh, he's been really uh, involved in all, all that, particularly with this, uh, um, with the dubia over Amoris Letizia. Um, so I, I think that he's been at the centre of resistance from from the word go, as I put in the book. I mean, during the synod on the family, the two synods on the family, um, he was dead against any shift on communion for divorce to be married and has been ever since. I would say my observation is that he clearly has... He has a constituency within the church. He has a following, big following, uh, and they expect uh, him to to lead them. And they actually expect him, I sensed, to uh, speak out against Francis. And I, 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 my feeling is with Cardinal Black is that he does have to kind of keep his constituency happy. Uh, and I think part of keeping the constituency happy is to call him to question some of the things the Pope is doing. And I think that there is a there is a well-funded lobby behind him, um, and uh, he is he is part of that. And they that that lobby is is pretty hostile to what Francis is doing. Interestingly, Francis, although he removed him from the head of the Apostolic Signatura and um, made him effectively powerless within the Order of Malta, although he he made those moves against him, he has he gave him a a role. As a, as a consultant to the absolute signature, and he also got him to investigate the canonical case of abuse in Guam. Um, so the Pope has actually tried to keep Cardinal Burke within the uh, within the tent, 
Um, and that's one of the things that's characteristic of Francis is, is that he doesn't um, take on the, the opposition in a, um, in a confrontational way. He often goes around the edges or tries to, tries to keep people on board. And I, and I, I think that's a genuine intention of Francis to to try and keep the church together, try and keep the different factions in all all within a sense of unity. So I, I just think he he he's not doing that purely for for kind of strategic reasons. He's doing it because I think he genuinely wants to have different voices within the church. When you said you don't think that it's strategic on Francis's part, I, I believe that's absolutely true. I think my own personal opinion, and I, I've written about this, is that it's is that Francis is sacrificing what might be a better outcome in not giving any kind of ecclesial cover to these movements by generously allowing these people, prelates that are in open opposition, to maintain their title. Very early in the SSPX movement, Pope Paul VI uh, suspended the faculties of Archbishop Lefebvre. And since then, the SSPX has remained tiny. Um, but I think out of concern for, for Cardinal Burke himself, because I, I personally would expect that if canonical action was taken against him, that he would continue his crusade, whether it took him outside the church or not. Uh, I think Francis, out of concern for Cardinal Burke himself, has allowed him to remain a cardinal. I don't, I, this is just my speculation. I don't know if you have a sense of that, but I think it would be much more, if we look in terms of outcome, uh, he would lose a lot of clout. One of the arguments that's used against our arguments at, against Burke at where Peter is, people will say, well, he's a cardinal in good standing. Why shouldn't Archbishop Chaput invite him to, to his cathedral? Why shouldn't Raymond DeRoyo ask him for his opinion on this magisterial document? He's a cardinal in good standing. Pope Francis clearly doesn't disagree with him. Uh, are, are, do you get that sense as well? Yeah, I think the Pope doesn't want to um, go after his opponents or to discipline or uh, sanction everyone who who criticizes him um, or is not in agreement, and I think he, he genuinely will have a as as pope as a, as a as a an instrument of unity in the church as the centre of unity in the church. Uh, he will be wanting to to ensure that the cardinal remains within it um, and not and not to try and alienate or exclude. Um, him and that's why I think he's given him those roles, uh, advisory roles that I mentioned earlier. Um, I mean, the the, the Pope has uh, talked about allowing people to retire and not replacing them. He's talked about um, not taking on the opposition in a in a full frontal way, and I think that's part of the approach with uh, with Cardinal Burke. He's he's not he's not going to. Um, you know, try and make a martyr out of out of someone um, who disagrees with him. I mean, the Pope has also talked about criticism being healthy, and I think there is a, a, that's an important point. I think that that, that criticism is is a, an, is 
is a, a, a healthy thing to have within the church, and no, no one is above criticism. Um, but what he said was less helpful was the kind of uh, under-the-table knifing that went on and the, um, the, the toxic attacks. And I think that, that's what my book tries to look at. I'm not saying... Um, that Francis shouldn't be criticised. What I'm saying is that there have been these attacks which which don't seem to be about criticism. They seem to be about genuine attempts to to bring down uh, the pontificate. I was hoping that, you know, before we let you go, um, there, there was one more thing I was hoping you could comment on, both from your own perspective and also in terms of everything we've been talking about here, which was the extraordinary Irby at Orby um, just recently, and um, obviously it was it was notable just in terms of our own pope and and sort of the approach that we have, or as Pope Francis as a pastor. But I, I felt that it was also notable in the sense that all, all these detractors that you would look to found themselves applauding Pope Francis. And I don't know if you could just comment on on that moment in particular. Was this should we expect more of the same? I guess, or should we expect sort of as is this a, a change in tone from the opposition or uh, was this just an extraordinary event well I've, i think you've you've hit on something important there i think the COVID 19 crisis um is a real game changer for the church it's going to have profound implications i think in the long term and what francis has done is shown himself as a as a spiritual leader to the world uh, as it goes through a, you know a dark night of the soul and pope francis has stepped up um he's in the epicenter of the uh, pandemic He's 83 and therefore is vulnerable to the, the coronavirus disease. Um, and I think his Urbi at Orbi blessing and event was, was um, that was uh, Bergoglio at his best. And you know, the, the, the grand gesture, the application of the church's tradition and teaching and gospel and the gospel to um, a world crisis. Well, thank you very much uh, to Christopher Lamb, author of the new book, The Outsider, Pope Francis and His Battle to Reform the Church, published by Orbis Books. What should we look to in the future? Well, I, I, I hope to be writing more about uh, the Francis Papacy. I hope to maybe write um, another book. I'm not quite sure yet on what, but uh, I, would like to, I would like to keep writing. Um, I think uh, you can also look out in America for the documentary that I was involved in uh, called Inside the Vatican, which is airing on PBS uh, on April 28th, which gives a kind of insider's take on how the Vatican runs and what the Pope has been doing to reform. So, uh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to keep going, keep plugging away. Um, it's not an easy time for um, the media at the moment with uh, the uh, with the COVID-19 pandemic. We're all shut down in, in, in lockdown. Yeah, I also sense there's never been more demand for for what the media does and what uh, what journalism, particularly Catholic journalism, is doing. So I'm going to I'm going to keep going and uh, please, uh, please watch this space, as they say. Thank you very much for your work. And you're also a very busy man. Uh, our listeners maybe heard a, a baby crying in the background. You are the new father to a little boy named yeah. Thomas Francis Arthur Lamb. Lovely name, lovely middle name. I have two middle names and the first one is also Francis. So, um, <laughs> well, thank you very much. He's, he's, he's nine weeks old and uh, he's keeping uh, me pretty busy, but uh, 
reminding me of what's important in life. Absolutely. This has forced all of us with kids to uh, learn to appreciate them more. (laughs) Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. And once again, the book is The Outsider, Pope Francis and His Battle to Reform the Church by Christopher Lamb, published by Orbis Books, available at the publisher website and at Amazon.com. Sorry that all of our questions uh, were about Austin Ivory. So. Yeah. <laughs>